Good to be with you again. Um, I know some of you are, are probably from, you know, other churches, but uh, this session is not the totality of my seminar. We will actually finish the seminar here tomorrow morning. Uh, session three is entitled The Hurt of Healing. Tomorrow morning we'll be looking at physical healing. Is it always God's will to be healed? If I'm not healed, is it because I don't have enough faith? Is healing provided for in the atonement? Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, by his stripes we are healed. So we'll be looking at all of those tomorrow morning. So if you're able to come back, I would love to have you back tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, correct? 10 o'clock. Okay. All right, this session is entitled Mangled Manifestations. And in this session, we'll be looking at some of the more dramatic, spectacular things of the word faith movement, the charismatic movement. Uh, we'll be looking at being slain in the spirit, people who claim they've been to heaven, how does God speak to us today, uh, and tongues. And that's what we will begin with, is dealing with tongues. Now, I want to show you a video clip from Beth Moore. And uh, she is going to define, okay, there's, to set this up, there is a debate within Christianity as to whether the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, are still in operation or not. Tongues interpretation of tongues, signs, and healing. And some Christians uh, believe that all of these gifts are still in effect, are still in operation. That is a view known as continuism. If you are a continuist, you believe that all of these spiritual gifts are still in operation. There's another view known as cessationism. If you are a cessationist, that means that you believe not that all of the gifts have ceased, only the apostolic gifts have ceased. Tongues, healing, interpretation of tongues, and, and uh, signs and wonders. So watch this from Beth Moore, though, as she misdefines cessationism. Oh, I'd, I'd help if I started the presentation. Okay. Okay, it would be really helpful if Beth, before Beth Moore started teaching on something, she would actually understand what it is that she's talking about and get the definition right. That is not cessationism. Cessationism is not the teaching that all miracles have ceased. A, salvation is a miracle. And so if you're going to say all miracles have ceased, that means that God's not saving anybody today. So that is not what cessationism is. 
nor is cessationism the belief that all spiritual gifts have ceased. She gets that wrong too. So before she starts teaching on something, it would behoove her to get at least the definition right. And so she really misrepresents this and does a real disservice. Now, Beth Moore, say something about her. I'm not necessarily calling her a false teacher. However, she is a poor Bible teacher. She has bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is your Bible interpretation methods. Everybody has hermeneutics. You either got good hermeneutics or bad hermeneutics. She has, overall, she's got bad hermeneutics. She's very prone to do what we were discussing in the last session, taking promises that God made to individuals or the nation Israel, making blanket application for us today. You cannot do that. She's very prone to do that. Um, she misdefines things, if, as we've just seen. She also claims or she believes and teaches that Roman Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not. Roman Catholicism is not Christianity, but she believes that it is. It's not. Uh, she also claims to hear God speak to her outside of Scripture. We'll be talking about that in just a little bit. And uh, she says that God has even instructed her to write things down that he says. That's a bad sign. That's a big red flag. Another big red flag with Beth Moore is the people with whom she associates. She regularly, or see, every Wednesday, every Wednesday she is on James Robison's program on TBN. Wednesdays with Beth, they call it. James Robison is Word of Faith. James Robinson is a false teacher. James Robinson associates with Benny Hinn, with Kenneth Copeland, with all these others. Uh, Glenn Beck. James Robinson calls Glenn Beck his brother in Christ. Glenn Beck is a New Age Mormon who, incidentally, actually goes to the same church that James Robinson does, which is kind of weird. Now, what does it say about Beth Moore when she is on James Robinson's program every weekday, every Wednesday? When James Robinson says that Glenn Beck, a Mormon, is his brother in Christ, what does that say? So, a lot of reasons to be cautious, very, very, very cautious about Beth Moore. Uh, ladies, you can do a lot better than Beth Moore. Susan Heck. <laughs> uh, get her stuff. So, at any rate, Beth Moore, as you can see, you know, oftentimes she will teach on things that she does not even understand from the gate, doesn't even get the definition right. So, you know, the conclusions to which you come will also be off if you don't even have the definition right. So, setting that up, let's look at tongues. Now, I mentioned there is a debate as to whether or not the apostolic gifts are still in operation. Now, so everybody will know where I'm coming from. I am a cessationist. I am a, uh, a committed cessationist for a number of reasons. Um, and we'll look at some of these as, as we go through. I think, one, if you have an open, if you, if you believe in the charismatic position that all of these gifts are still in operation, you've got real problems with the sufficiency of Scripture and the closing of the canon that we'll look at. But uh, I do believe that these apostolic gifts have ceased. And we'll look at some of these things. Now, regardless of your view, regardless of where you come down on this, there are some items here dealing with tongues uh, that are just absolutely indisputable, okay? Absolutely indisputable, regardless of, of where you come down. But if you fully understand these things, I think you're going to have to come down on the uh, cessationist position. Number one, tongues are not unique to Christianity, okay? Some pagan religions speak in tongues as well. Some Buddhists speak in tongues. Some Hindus speak in tongues. And so the fact that non-Christians can speak in tongues and they do it just as convincingly as any professing charismatic Christian 
that is proof positive that just because someone is speaking in tongues does not necessarily mean that he or she is getting that ability from God. If lost people can do it, then that's proof that it's not necessarily coming from God, right? Also, tongues can be practiced in an ignorant, ungodly way. Tongues can be practiced in such a way that it brings attention to the person speaking in tongues rather than glorifying Christ and edifying the body. And this is what was going on in the church in Corinth. This is basically the reason why Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Also, if done in public and in corporate worship, an interpreter must always be present and must always interpret. Paul says uh, this should not be done by two or at the most three people. And if they do it, they should do it in turn and let one interpret. And if there's no one there to interpret, Paul says, let him remain silent. So if there's no interpretation going on, that is outside of biblical parameters. Okay, should not be happening. This is very, very clear. 1 Corinthians 14. Also, it is false that all believers should speak in tongues. Some churches teach that if you are saved, then your salvation will be evidenced by you speaking in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't have the gift of tongues, you're not saved. But this is patently unbiblical. The Apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions there in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not teach, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? Clearly, the implied answer to these rhetorical questions is no. No, they don't. So it's very unbiblical to say that if you are saved, you must speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not saved. If the gift of tongues is a spiritual gift, and it is, or at least it was then we can no more say that every Christian should have the gift of tongues than we could say that every Christian should have the gift of teaching or every Christian should have the gift of mercy or exhortation or administration. Every Christian does not have every spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit distributes the gifts among the body as he wills. And so you can't say that everybody should have tongues any more than you can say everybody should have teaching, the gift of teaching. It's false. Also, tongues were for a sign of judgment. Tongues, this is something a lot of people miss, myself included, for, for up until the last couple of, couple of years or so. Tongues were for a sign of judgment. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22, is the only place in the New Testament that actually gives us a reason for the gift of tongues, a purpose, a function of it. And the gift of tongues was given as a sign of judgment. We know this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22. He says, tongues were for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Did Paul mean that when an unbeliever sees you speaking in tongues, they will just be so impressed by that ability that they will have to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord? No, not at all. Paul was quoting Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. He directly quotes Isaiah chapter 28. Well, now the question is, what was going on in Isaiah chapter 28? Well, go back to Isaiah chapter 28. What was going on is judgment. Judgment. One of the signs that God was bringing judgment on his people was that, uh, his people, the Jews, the Hebrews, is that one day the, the Jews would look up and in their midst would be a group of people speaking 
an unknown tongue, an unknown language, whether it was Assyrian, Babylonian, whatever, whatever. Well, that's one of the signs that the Hebrews knew, uh-oh, we're in trouble. God's about to bring the hammer down. When they had a group of people in their midst speak, speaking a foreign language. And this is what Paul quotes here in 1 Corinthians 14. This is the reason for tongues. It was for a sign of judgment. In fact, the first example we have of, of, of God giving languages, um, not in the New Testament, actually go way on back to the Tower of Babel. Uh, and that was for judgment too. Well, this is what Paul is quoting here, and this is what we see in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell, and these men began to speak in other languages. That was a sign of coming judgment. How is that judgment? Well, the book of Acts is a book of transition, okay? Transitioning from Judaism to Jesus. And this was judgment in the sense that Israel, the Jews, almost without exception had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They crucified him. They put him on a tree, nailed him to a tree. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so God's salvific gaze, okay, was shifting from the Jews to the Gentiles. And even today, Israel remains under the judgment of God in a saving sense. Not in a political sense. You know, I'm not saying that we should not support Israel. We should. But in a salvific sense, God is doing the vast majority of his saving work, not among Jews, among Gentiles. Now, God does on occasion save a few Jews. There are a handful of Messianic Jews, but they are few and far between. The vast, vast majority of Jews to this very day continue to reject Jesus as their Messiah. And so they are under the judgment of God. God's salvific gaze has shifted from the Jews to the Gentiles. Now, one day, God's salvific gaze will return to the Jews. Romans chapter 11, God will return to Israel. But for right now, Israel is under the judgment of God. And that is what tongues signified. It's a sign of judgment. And also related to this, tongues were known languages. Not unintelligible gibberish. Known languages. We see that in Acts 2. They, when the Holy Spirit fell, they began to speak in other tongues. They said, are these men not Galileans? How is it then that we hear them in our own languages? In fact, tongues is kind of an unfortunate rendering. It's better, better rendered the gift of languages. Not unintelligible gibberish. Languages. And yet, what do we see today in the modern charismatic movement? Unintelligible gibberish. Baby talk, nonsense. That is not the biblical gift of tongues. To give you an illustration of how the gift of tongues would have worked in the, in the, uh, in the early church, let's just say that, uh, oh, by the way, it's not just tongues, it's also interpretation of tongues. Interpretation of tongues. And the way this would have worked is would have, um, say, Steve stand up, and all of a sudden, even though Steve speaks English, all of a sudden he was able to speak in uh, Swahili. And he would stand up and say something in Swahili, a language that was not known to him. And uh, then we have Vicky, and she gets up, and she speaks in Portuguese. I'm assuming you don't know Portuguese, right? Okay, she speaks in Portuguese. And then uh, uh, someone else speaks, uh, stands up and speaks in German. Say, Kathy stands up and speaks in German. 
And then if I had the gift of interpretation of tongues, I would be able to translate what Steve said, what Piki said, and what Kathy said in Swahili, in Portuguese, and German. Now, you talk about an in- impressive gift, not speaking in tongues. I mean, that's in and of itself, that's pretty impressive. But to interpret any language instantly, that's an impressive gift. And you know what? Nobody today claims to have the gift of interpretation of languages. You don't see that going on anywhere. Why? Because it would be so easily proved demonstrably false. You know, it would be very easy to disprove that. You don't see anybody today with the gift of interpretation of languages. And what a great opportunity if this was going on. If the Holy Spirit was still giving the gift of languages and interpretation of languages... What better opportunity to give these gifts than to give them to whom? Missionaries. Why not give these gifts to our missionaries? But that's not happening. What do we do with our missionaries? We send them to language school. And they spend two, three, four years learning a language. And then they go off. And But, you know, wouldn't it cut out a lot of the time and effort to just give them the gift of languages? But you don't see that. Nowhere. It's not happening. It's not happening. Tongues were known languages, not unintelligible gibberish. You can very easily fake the gift of tongues. You know, at least the charismatic version of it. You can do that. It's easy. You, you can learn how to do it. I've talked to a lot of people who used to be in this movement and they spoke in tongues. God brought them out and they, yet they still have the ability to do it. Mahanda, Mahanda, somebody stole a Mahanda. My Honda, my Honda, somebody stole my Honda. You know, I mean, you just, you learn how to do it. You can teach a canary how to speak in tongues. Now, in in churches have classes on how to speak in tongues. A lot of churches have classes. They will teach you how to speak in tongues. Now, my question is, if this is something for which the Holy Spirit gives utterance, why in the world would you ever, would it be necessary to teach somebody how to do it? And, by the way, gifts, spiritual gifts, are they for our own personal use? No. They're for the edification of the body. If God gave you the gift of teaching, he did not give you the gift of teaching so you could go on into your own private prayer closet and teach yourself. You are to teach the body. You know, the gift of mercy is not for you. You don't show yourself mercy. Show others mercy. And so it would be a very odd hermeneutic to say, okay, yeah, all the gifts are for the body, but for this one gift, I'm going to carve out an exception for that gift, and I'm going to use that in my own private prayer closet, my own private prayer language. It would be a very odd hermeneutic. But a lot of people will teach others how to speak in tongues. Watch this video clip. This is from Sid Roth. And uh, watch this from TBN and how he is about to teach the live studio audience how to speak in tongues. And if you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, of Raise your hands to the holy God. 
and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do it in I know you don't know what to say. Make little nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. But if the first words coming out of your spirit, do it faster. I said faster. I said faster. You can do it faster than that. If I had a gun in your ribs, you'd do it faster. If you were to take every biblical parameter there is on the gift of tongues, he just broke it. You know, and, and he says, you know, just, I can teach you how to speak in tongues. Just, just start saying, he actually says, just start saying baby words over and over. And then he says, faster, faster, you can do it faster than that. If I had a gun in your side, you could do it faster than that. Can't you just see the Apostle Paul saying to, to his listeners, faster, faster, if, if I had a dagger in your side, you could do it faster than that. This is so far removed from what we see in the New Testament. This is not Christian. This is cultic. By the way, you know what part of the uh, Corinthians' former pagan worship before they were saved, what it included? Ecstatic, ecstatic gibberish. It's the same thing that we see in the charismatic movement today. And also, when you look through the last 1900 years of the, of the Christian church, history of the Christian church, there's scant evidence of anyone speaking in tongues. You hardly see it at all. Uh, you just on a couple of three occasions you see it, but it's very isolated and they're always connected to some questionable theological groups out there on the fringe, like the Montanists, you know, just quirky groups. You do not see tongues being exercised in the mainstream body of Christ at all, ever. Don't see it. Well, Where's that gift been for the last 1,900 years? You don't see tongues again until the year 1906. What happened in 1906? The Azusa Street Revival, which gave birth to the modern charismatic movement, which in turn gave birth to the Word of Faith movement. Well, where's that gift been for 1,900 years? If the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts among the body as He wills, why is it that for 1,900 years, you didn't have to go far to find somebody with the gift of teaching? You didn't have to go far to find somebody with the gift of mercy. You didn't have to go far to find somebody with the gift of, of administration or exhortation, but to find somebody with the gift of tongues? Wasn't there. What, did the Holy Spirit just forget about that one? Very interesting argument, I think, to be made from church history, that those gifts, those apostolic gifts, had indeed ceased had passed away uh, with the closing of the canon of Scripture. I would say even before the closing of the canon of Scripture, those gifts had already passed away, passed out of operation. Now, uh, some will say, well, tongues, tongues is this heavenly language. And the reason, they say, for tongues is when you speak in your heavenly language, Satan can't understand you. This, too, from Sid Roth. The reason the devil, and that's who it is, does not want you to speak in supernatural languages is because this is the doorway 
into all of the supernatural. Listen to this. No satanic resistance. Why do I say that? The devil doesn't understand what you're saying. He can't resist you. You got it? So when you speak in uh, tongues and your heavenly language, the devil can't understand you. So you kind of sneak one in under him. You know, he can't understand you. And they would use as their support 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And the charismatics look at this and they'll say, see, right there, Paul talks about the tongues of angels. And that's what tongues is. That's what, you know, this ecstatic gibberish is. It's the tongues of angels. Is that what Paul's talking about? No, not at all. Paul is using hyperbole. He's, he's exaggerating to make a point. What Paul is saying is, hey, guys, and remember who he's writing to. He's writing to some baby Christians that were in a, on all kinds of error and heresy and sin. You know, and they were in just in gross error. And Paul is writing the book of 1 Corinthians to correct them. And he's basically saying, look, guys, you know, you think you're, you think you're good. You think you're super spiritual because you speak in tongues. Even if I could speak with the tongues of men, even if I could speak with the tongues of angels, but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm a noisy gong. I'm claiming clanging symbol. They were real, uh, real into all the flashy spiritual gifts because they thought that was a sign of spiritual maturity. But what they did not have was genuine love. He's saying, if, if that's you, you're a noisy gong. You're a clanging symbol. You're nothing. You're just bringing attention to yourself. And Paul continues, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Did Paul know all mysteries? No. Did he have all knowledge? No. In fact, he says in the same chapter, we see through a glass dimly. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Did Paul have all faith? Did he rearrange the topography of first century Palestine? No. But do not have love? I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, had Paul done this? No. And if I surrender my body to be burned, had Paul surrendered his body to be burned? Obviously not. He was still very much alive writing the book of 1 Corinthians. But do not have love. It profits me nothing. Paul is using exaggeration to make a point. And Paul's saying, look, even if I can speak with the tongues of angels, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. This is not supporting some ecstatic, unintelligible gibberish. Not at all. Not at all. And some will say, well, how can you say the gift of tongues has ceased when Paul says, do not forbid to speak in tongues? Let's look at this. This from Joyce Meyer. Paul said, do not forbid anybody to speak in tongues. Well, Paul did indeed say that. He said, do not forbid to speak in tongues. And so the charismatic argument is, how can you say that gift of cease when Paul says, do not forbid it? Well, the solution to this is actually very easy. When Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, the gift of tongues was still in operation. But it's not now. Why? Because its function has already been fulfilled. It's already done its job. And two, you know, it's pretty obvious looking from the... Uh, last 1900 years of church history, that gift was no longer in operation. So, but when Paul was writing the book of 1 Corinthians, it was still in operation for a few more years. Probably 
for about four or five more years, and then it ceased, passed away. Okay, I want us to look now at spectacular claims. All of the faith preachers have these wild, spectacular claims about how God is just doing amazing things through their ministries. And this is one of the ways they get you to continue following their ministries. They get you to continue shelling out your money to their ministries. Uh, This from Rick Joyner. Rick Joyner is a member of the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, a splinter group off of Word Faith. Watch this from Rick Joyner as he talks about the never-ending casserole. I believe we're going to see miracles like, you know, multiplying of food and things like that. You know, we all want to see these miracles. We just don't want to be in a situation where we have to see them. But guess what? We're going to be in a situation where we're going to need to see some of these miracles. And we are. I've seen those before. I've seen food multiply. I mean, you can't see it. You look at the dish and you can't see it. But there, we keep dishing out and there's, it's the same amount. We fed a mold. I mean, we fed a huge group one time from one casserole and it just never ran out. Just never ran out. Just like Jesus with the loaves and the fishes just never ran out. Is there any proof of this? No. No. And just, you have to trust him at face value, I suppose. Watch this from Sid Roth and Joshua Mills. My guest, Joshua Mills, is a legitimate sign and wonder. You'll understand what I mean in just a few moments. But he, you're, 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 I know I'm stretching some of you right now. I might as well stretch you all the way. In, in, you see, in the Arctic area, you need sunglasses because the glare could blind you. And so there was a woman out was she fishing? or She was going out onto the water to go fishing, and she, she had to wear these sunglasses in order to keep her direction. And when she went out into the water, God began blessing her with such a wonderful catch of fish. She just continued to pull them in. She was pulling up this big fish, Sid, and as she leaned over the boat, her, the glasses fell off her head into the water. So this was, this was dangerous. She could lose her, her eyesight. It was a big situation for her. But instead of being worried, she just knew that we, she served a miracle-working God and that he would take care of all the, the problems that she might have and so she just continued fishing just continued bringing in the wonderful catch of fish she was ready to go back she was pulling in the last catch of the day and as she was pull, pull, pulling in this big fish she looked down on the fish here he was wearing a pair of sunglasses on his face the fish was wearing the sunglasses the fish was wearing sunglasses I've never <laughs> seen a fish with sunglasses have you? and the wonderful part about this testimony is that it wasn't the same pair of sunglasses that she lost but it was a brand new pair a, a better pair of sunglasses than the one she lost. So are you really seeing all these very strange signs and wonders in the Arctic? We're seeing so many unusual signs and wonders, not just in the Arctic, but all over the world. So a fish wearing sunglasses. Yeah. I wonder, were they Ray-Bans? Were they Oakleys? What were I don't know. Joshua Mills, by the way, he's, he, he claims that oil will ooze out of his hands. And sometimes even jewels and rubies will just materialize out of the palms of his hands. And he says that oil will ooze out of his feet. And if you are so inclined, you could go to his website and uh, for a donation, he will actually stand on a piece of cloth and let this oil ooze out of his feet and soak into the cloth and then he'll wrap it up and mail it to you. No thanks. <laughs> you can keep it. But, I mean, it's just, these kind of things are 
And up here in Redding, California, Bill Johnson, standard fare. They claim that uh, angel feathers float out of the sky and they just float down in their services. Gold dust comes out and, and filters through. They say that people will open their Bibles and there will be manna in their Bibles. Uh, they say that God is giving people gold fillings in their teeth. Turn their tooth fillings into gold. Which I just find kind of weird. What, I mean, if, if God was going to do that, why wouldn't he just heal your tooth? But no, he's going to turn it into gold. You know, and the more bizarre, the better. You know, but these are parlor tricks. On occasion, on occasion, I think the vast majority of this stuff is parlor tricks. Sleight of hand, you know, hocus pocus, pull a rabbit out of a hat. But some of it may be real. It may be really spiritual in nature, but not of God. Not of God. Demons have power. Demons can counterfeit signs and wonders. Remember Moses and Aaron? The Egyptian magicians, they were able to turn the staff into a snake. They were able to turn the Nile River into blood. It's a pretty neat trick. They weren't getting that power on their own. That was demonic. Demons do have ability to counterfeit signs and wonders. Don't look at what somebody can do. Okay. Don't look at the size of their church. Don't look at how fast it's growing. Don't look at how popular they are. I would even caution you, don't even necessarily go by their statement of faith. Doctrinal statements are, are good in and of themselves. But most of these people, when you go look at them, they're very shallow. You know, very, you know what they say in and of itself, most of it's okay, but it's, it's very shallow. You know, don't, Joel Osteen has a, I mean, for what's there, it's, it's okay. No depth to it. But don't look at that. Look at the content of what they teach. Look at how they handle the Word of God. Look at the, how they glorify Christ or how they don't glorify Christ. Look at the character of their lives. Not at the flashy external stuff. Oh, well, they can do these signs and wonders and, and God must have this hand on them. No. Oh, well, they're, they're growing by leaps and bounds. Look how fast the church is growing. God must be growing that church. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, what we know from Scripture that as the days go on, what will happen to the spiritual climate? Will it be getting better? No, it'll be getting worse. And so as we get further and further along that continuum and, and we do see churches that are just exploding and, and bursting at the seams, you know, uh, that's going to be in and of itself enough reason, I think, to give us some caution. What's going on here? So, no, don't, don't look at that stuff. That'll, that'll, that'll trick you. Heavenly encounters. It almost seems like if you want to make it into big time Christianity today, the publishing world, it really helps if you've been to heaven at least once. Without a doubt, the most comical of the TV preachers is Jesse Duplantis. I see some of you have watched Jesse Duplantis. He's funny. I mean, when you watch him, he's, you know, he's, he's funny. He'd be a great stand-up comedian, terrible preacher. But what put Jesse on the map was this message he began preaching in the mid-90s entitled Close Encounters of the God Kind. And in this message, Jesse Duplantis relates a story about how in 1988 he was in Magnolia, Arkansas, and he was having a, a meeting there preaching. He was having a meal with some other preachers there in the area, and all of a sudden he felt burdened of the Lord to go and spend time in prayer. And he wasn't sure what was happening, but he just felt so burden that he had to get up he left the restaurant went back to his hotel 
walked into his room, closed the door behind him, and then he got down on his knees and he said, Lord, what? And Jesse said right at that moment he was sucked up out of his room, found himself on a cable car traveling through space and time at a phenomenal rate of speed. There was a blonde-haired angel on the cable car traveling along with him. And when the doors, uh, or when the cable car finally came to a stop, the doors open and Jesse steps out into heaven. And Jesse then goes on to tell you about everything that he saw, everything that he heard while he was in heaven. Now, our first concrete clue that something here isn't quite right with Jesse's trip to heaven is what the angel on the cable car told him. The angel said, you have an appointment with the great God, Jehovah. This is our first concrete clue that something's not right. Something's not adding up. Dear friends, Jehovah is not God's name. God's name is not Jehovah. His name is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H or Yahweh. Uh, God's ancient name, Hebrew had no vowels. It was all consonants. But God's name, and it was written from right to left. But for our purposes here, the English transliteration of God's name, Hebraic name, is Y-H-W-H. Now, what happened in the year 1520, there was a scholar by the name of Peter Galatin. And what Galatin did, he took the consonants of Yahweh, and he took another name for God, the name Adonai, which means ruler, one who is in control, and these vowels were added later just to help in pronunciation. But what he did, he took the consonants of Yahweh and he took the vowels of Adonai and he smushed them together. And when he smushed them together, this is what happened. The Y in Yahweh drops down, as does the A in Adonai. The H drops down, as does the O in Adonai. The W drops down, as does the final eight, A in Adonai and the final H in Yahweh, and you have Yahuwah. And I'll give you three guesses, and two of them don't count as to what the English equivalent of Yahuwah is. You guessed it, Jehovah. So the name Jehovah did not even exist until about 500 years ago. Jehovah is not God's name. Next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, you might like to share this information with them. They might find it really interesting. Jehovah is not God's name. Now, is it a sin to call God Jehovah? No, I don't think it's necessarily a sin. It's just one of these names that has worked its way into our English vernacular, you know, and and most people, a lot of people use it, but technically it is not God's name. Maybe it's time for us to get on a first name basis with the creator of the universe. His name is Yahweh, not Jehovah. The point, though, of the matter is this. An angel would have known better. An angel would have known better. An angel would never have said, you have an appointment with Jehovah. If anything, assuming you can get past the whole cable car deal, he would have said, you have an appointment with Yahweh. So an angel would have known better, but apparently Jesse Duplantis did not. And so he plays his cards here a little bit too much. Watch this video clip taken from the same message and listen carefully to what Jesus supposedly told Jesse while he was... uh, See what Jesse said about this account. I took my do not disturb, then a little thing, I put it on there, closed the door. 
There's one minute to one. I looked at the clock, you know, those digital clocks that hotels had. And I knelt down. I, I didn't know what, though. I had no idea what. I said, in this position like this, I don't know if you can see me or not. Just, and I said, Lord, what? And I was sucked out of my room. I heard this. And I went, I just, now I don't know whether I was in my body or out of my body. I believe I was in my body. Jesse said, I don't know whether I was in my body or out of my body. I believe I was in my body. Does that sound familiar? I took my do not. Oh, excuse me. If that sounds familiar, there's good reason for, the, for that because it's the exact same terminology that the Apostle Paul used. 2 Corinthians 12, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which man is not permitted to speak. The exact same terminology that the Apostle Paul used, Jesse Duplantis uses. And so what is Jesse trying to do? Jesse is subtly, in your mind, he's trying to elevate his experience to the same authoritative level as that of Scripture. And who was this man who was caught up to the third heaven? Who was Paul talking about? Himself. Well, why does he use the third person? Why doesn't he refer to himself in the first person like we would normally do? He referred to himself in the third person because that is how humbled he was by what he had experienced. And even with that level of humility... God still gave him a thorn in the flesh, verse 7, that would humble him even further. And notice, too, what do we know about what the Apostle Paul saw and heard in heaven? Nothing. We have no idea what he saw. We have no idea what he heard. Why? Because he said he heard words that are inexpressible, that man's not permitted to speak. Contrast that with Jesse Duplantis. And Jesse just can't wait to tell you about everything that he saw, everything that he heard while he was in heaven. I mean, he went to his own personal mansion, and he saw that his mansion was filled with the kind of furniture that Jesse just loves, loves that kind of claw and ball hammer furniture or whatever it is. And uh, he said his, his yard is edged just perfectly, just edged really neat, real immaculate yard. And uh, he, he went to the to the throne room of God and he got into God's throne room and he was, he was so overwhelmed by God's majesty that he couldn't even hardly bear to lift up his head but he managed to lift it up just enough to see God sitting on his throne see his hands on this throne and he saw God wiggle his little finger and when God wiggled his little finger he threw angels up against the wall and they just splattered on the wall you know, I mean just bizarre Doesn't really bear a lot of resemblance to what we read about the Apostle Paul, does it? It's not just the word faith charismatics that have been to heaven. Some of the people who have been to heaven are Baptist. You heard of this book, 90 Minutes in Heaven? Don Piper, Baptist preacher. Don Piper had a horrific car accident in southeast Texas in 1989, no doubt about that. 
But where the doubt comes in is what he says happened immediately upon impact. Don Piper says that when his car impacted, he died. And then he went and he spent an hour and a half in heaven, 90 minutes in heaven. And when, if you've read this book, very little of the book is actually about heaven, only like 20 pages or so. And the rest of the book is about his excruciating physical recovery. And honestly, I can't imagine what the guy went through. It must have been absolutely horrible, the pain that he went through. Don't doubt that. I do doubt what he said about heaven, though. So he says he went to heaven, and he saw some of his friends and family members. He saw his high school buddy who died at an early age. He said he saw his grandfather, whom he describes as still having his, quote, big banana nose. Apparently his grandfather had a big nose. He said he saw his great-grandmother, Hattie. And he said that, her, that Hattie's back was no longer curved. Her back was now straight. And instead of her dentures or whatever it was she had, maybe bad teeth, she said, he said that uh, she had a gleaming white smile, beautiful smile for his great-grandmother Hattie. There's a problem with this. There's a problem with this. Dear friends, the people who are in heaven right now don't yet have their glorified bodies. One day they will, one day we will, but right now they don't. So when people go to heaven, or supposedly go to heaven, and talk about how people's bodies look, uh-uh, they don't yet have their glorified bodies. And then he goes on and he describes this huge, massive place. He's kind of like on the outside of heaven, right on the outskirts. But he could see the massive wall, he could see the pearly gates and all that. problem with that, too. <laughs> The new Jerusalem is described in the book of Revelation. Guess what? That hasn't been built yet either. He's describing something that doesn't even yet exist. That's a problem. But there's another problem with Don Piper's story. Is Don Piper says of all the people he saw in heaven, his friends, family members, you know, grandmother, grandfather, all these folks, he says on page 33, he says this, I did not see God. I saw no luminous glow that would have indicated his divine presence. So of all the people Don Piper saw, there is one person who said he's, he's very clear he did not see. He did not see God. This book came out in the year 2004. I want to show you a video clip from seven years later, 2011. It seems as though Don Piper's story has changed just a tad. Drinking that in and, and, and absorbing how great the mansions were. And then I began to look up through the gate and I could see this kind of pinnacle in the middle of the city. It's kind of a hill high and lifted up. There's a river flowing down the side of this. Well, it's the river of life and it's coming down the side of this mountain or hill, if you will. And at the top of that is the brightest light I've ever seen. And I know who that is. It's the Lord high and lifted up. This is his city. Now, wait a minute. In his book, I did not see God. Not only did he not see God, he didn't even see a luminous glow that would have indicated his divine presence. Seven years later, I did see God. He was up on top of the hill, and at the top of the hill was the brightest light I'd ever seen. And I knew who that was. It was the Lord, high and lifted up. Well, which is it? That's a pretty big deal. Title of your book is 90 Minutes in Heaven, and you can't remember whether or not you saw God? Hey, I will be the first to admit I'm bad with names and faces. You know, some, I will, I, sometimes I embarrass myself how bad I am with remembering names and faces. But you know what? 
as bad as I am, I do believe that there is probably one person whom if I met, I would never forget meeting. And that would be God. He's a liar. He's a liar. You know what I think has happened? I think it's been a while since he's read his own book. Seriously. I think he's forgotten what's in his own book. And as the years have gone on and this book has sold millions of copies, read into that what you will, millions of copies. Pretty lucrative business, is it not, going to heaven? And he's been on more and more radio interviews and more and more television appearances. I mean, he's been on everything from TBN to CBS. And this thing has just snowballed. His stories become more and more embellished. I think it's been a while since he's read his own book. He's a liar. There's another book out, Heaven is for Real. I heard about this one, little Colton Burpo, little three, almost four-year-old kid who had a uh, uh, health emergency and, and had to have surgery and supposedly died. And he went to heaven. And then he came back, and over time he began telling his parents about what he saw in heaven. And so they've written this book now, Heaven is for Real. I kind of take offense at the title, quite honestly. I don't need a four-year-old kid to tell me heaven is for real. The Bible tells me that. But he says he went to heaven and he saw Jesus and, and um, saw a brightly colored pony. And he said he sat on Jesus' lap and Jesus helped him with his homework. Now, I don't know, maybe he's just an exceptionally bright kid. I didn't have homework when I was four years old. But Jesus helped him with his homework. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. Sorry, I just don't, sorry, don't believe it. I don't think Jesus is helping people with their homework in heaven. It's not what heaven is about. But you know what? There's a problem with all of these accounts. One thing, they contradict one another. When you read their accounts, they're not in agreement. So logically, they cannot all be true, right? If they contradict one another, they can't all be true. Another problem is that they all add to Scripture. All of these accounts, whether it's Jesse Duplantis, whether it's um, Benny Hinn who says he's been there, whether it's Colton Burpo, whether it's Don Piper, whether it's Mary Baxter, whether it's Robert Lee Arden, all these people. They give us details about heaven that are not to be found in this book. Now, if they really are going to heaven and they really are coming back and accurately reporting to us the things that are in heaven, then you know what? Whatever they report to us, we should add to this book. Because if they're really there, if that really is how heaven is, then we should add that into Scripture. There's only one problem with that. This book says, do not add to this book. And so then the question is, well, what about all the poor people who died before they had a chance to read Heaven is for Real or 90 Minutes in Heaven? Or all the people who died before they had a chance to watch Jesse Duplantis' Close Encounters of the God Kind? Did they die with insufficient revelation of heaven? I guess they did. Because all these new sources, they give us new information about heaven that's not in here. Poor folks. See the problem we're having here? Dear friends, there were three men in the New Testament. Three who were allowed a glimpse into heaven. And all three of them were very much alive. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, right before he was stoned, he had a very brief glimpse. Remember, he said he saw the Son of, uh, he saw Jesus, Son of Man, standing at the right hand of the Father. 
very brief, very simple description. That's all we know. And then he was stoned. He wasn't having his best life now. Then we saw, we see John in the book of Revelation. By far, by far the most detailed account we have of heaven. But John was writing inspired, authoritative scripture. And so that is on a level all of its own. And the only other one is Paul. And he did not tell us what he saw and heard in heaven. Did not tell us. Now, let me get this straight. The man who wrote roughly a third of the New Testament was not allowed to tell us what he saw in heaven, and yet we're supposed to believe what Don Piper and Colton Burpo and Jesse Duplantis says about heaven? Really? Dear friends, if the man who wrote a third of the New Testament was not allowed to tell us what he saw and heard in heaven, I seriously doubt that any other Yahoo would be allowed to do so. Especially when they go around, they make careers off of their trip to heaven. They go on speaking tours, sell millions of copies of books. No, don't believe it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's a shocking lack of discernment amongst so many professing Christians today. And people, oh well, well Lifeway sells these books. You know, do y'all have Lifeway here? It's a, Lifeway, you know, uh, the, the largest Christian bookstore in the country. You know, it's, a, it's a kind of a, it's a loosely affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, Lifeway sells it. Surely it's okay if Lifeway sells it. Dear friends, one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to go is a Lifeway store. It's one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to go. Do they have some good stuff in there? Yeah, they do. They've got a lot of garbage in there too. They even sell books by T.D. Jakes, who's a modalist. T.D. Jakes doesn't even believe in the Trinity. It's a prosperity preacher. Word of faith doesn't believe in the Trinity. At least a lot of the word faith people will say they believe in the Trinity. T.D. Jakes doesn't. Listen carefully to what uh, Jesus supposedly told Jesse while he was in heaven. He said, I chose you. He said, no one else wanted you. But I need you, boy. I need you, Jesse. Jesus told Jesse, I need you. This from Kenneth Copeland. People that get all upset at preachers who preach prosperity never have taken the time to pray and see if God wanted them to prosper financially for some reason or another. God needs you saved. He needs you full of the Holy Ghost. He needs you well and he needs you strong and he needs you rich. Friends, God loves us but make no mistake about it. God does not need us. He is the Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. The wonderful counselor. Almighty God. Prince of Peace. He spoke the universe into existence. He has all of the stars named. He has need of no one and no thing. He does not need you. And he does not need me. We need him.
And any man who's teaching a gospel that says that God needs us is teaching a different gospel and does not know the gospel, does not know the God of the gospel. I want us now to look at, briefly, uh, slaying in the Spirit. Y'all know what this is, right? Okay. Uh, For time's sake, I won't even show the video clips. You've seen this. People falling over and falling backwards. And uh, the faith preachers really don't have a reason for it. They struggle giving a, a reason for this. But they say that it is supported in Scripture And let's look at a couple of the texts they would use. This is the transfiguration. And while Jesus yet spake, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were sore afraid. And the faith preachers say, See, here were the disciples. They were in the presence of God, and they fell. They fell over. Well, no, they didn't. Number one, in all likelihood, they just voluntarily lowered themselves down. They weren't out of control. They just lowered themselves down. Number two, which direction did the disciples go down? Face forward, face down. Which direction do people fall over when they're slain in the spirit? Backwards. So you can't use that. Then they'll say, well, what about John chapter 18? This is when Jesus was being arrested. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am. So when they said to them, so when he said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, admittedly, as far as how this looks, this is the closest thing that somewhat resembles being slain in the Spirit. It's the closest thing you'll find to that in the Bible. But there's a big problem with using this as biblical support for being slain in the Spirit. Who were the people that were doing the falling in John 18? Hmm? Yeah, the Romans, the Roman soldiers. Were these Christians? Uh Uh-uh. No, these were the Roman soldiers. So you can't take this as biblical support for something that we should be doing as Christians today. These people were lost. And you can look through the Bible and you can find some people who went down before the Lord in worship, but without exception, they went down face forward. They lowered themselves down face forward in worship. Anytime somebody falls backwards in the presence of God, it's always in judgment. Ananias and Sapphire, Acts chapter 5, they were slain in the Spirit. (laughs) Slain by the Spirit, I guess. Oh, well, I, I, and I've had people come up to me at seminars, a number of them, and they describe how they were slain in the Spirit. And they say, you know, Justin, I, 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 do it, I didn't do this on purpose. It just happened to me. Whoa. Be very careful. When we exceed biblical parameters, when we do what Paul tells us not to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, do not exceed what is written. When we exceed biblical parameters, you know what? We are opening ourselves up to demonic influence and demonic suggestion, and that is real. I don't doubt that some of these people are having experiences. I don't doubt that they're feeling something. Something is happening to them, but it is not of God. Dear friends, no matter how real an experience may seem, if it's not supported with Scripture, 
if it's not biblically sound, if it is not within biblical parameters, then you've exceeded what is written and you have opened yourself up to demonic influence, demonic suggestion. Let's look at this, the second blessing, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is a standard charismatic position. They teach that once you are saved, uh, you get saved, and then at some point after salvation, then you get the second blessing. Then you get the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, that's when you begin to speak in tongues. That's when you begin to heal people and move in these signs and wonders. And they would appeal to the book of Acts as their support. A couple of different places in the, books of, in the book of Acts. Now, let's say something about the book of Acts. I've already mentioned how the book of Acts is a transitional book, right? Uh, it's a transition in time from Judaism to Jesus. And when we read Acts, we have to remember that this is a time of transition. And by definition, a time of transition does not last permanently, right? That's what a transition means. It's a temporary thing. So when we read Acts, we have to keep in mind that not necessarily everything we read in Acts is to be considered normative from here on out. It was a time of transition. And Acts was not primarily written as a theological book. It was written primarily as historical narrative, giving us an account of the early days of the church. Now, there is theology in the book of Acts, but that's not the primary reason it was written. It was written as a historical narrative to give us an account of the early days of the church. So we need to keep those things in mind as we read the book of Acts. But a lot of the charismatics, this is one of their primary texts. They would look at Acts chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. Now let's pause right there. Charismatics would say that Paul found some Christians. Does it say that he found Christians? No, it says he found some disciples. You can be a disciple of a lot of different things. You could be a disciple of Buddha. You could be a disciple of Muhammad. You could be a disciple of Mickey Mouse. You know, you can be a disciple of a lot of different things. doesn't say he found disciples of Jesus. And even when we read in John's gospel that some of Jesus' disciples left him. Remember that? So be careful. It doesn't say he found Christians. It says he found some disciples. And so he asked them a question. He's trying to figure out who are these people? Who are these guys I just came across? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Oh, so Paul now here, he's, he's realizing, he's trying to figure out who are these guys? What do they believe? And they said, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul says, into what then were you baptized? And here's their answer. Into John's baptism. These were not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John. They had not yet come to a full saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And look at what Paul does. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Paul preached to them Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These men were converted right here. They were converted. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then, text goes on to say, Paul laid his hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. These men received the Holy Spirit at the same time. You and I received the Holy Spirit at our conversion. At our conversion. Now, the charismatics say, well, 
when you get saved, you get kind of like a down payment on the Holy Spirit. And then at some point later, you get the rest of him. Is this how God gives the Holy Spirit? No, it's not. Paul writes, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. There is a baptism by the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily in, but by the Holy Spirit. When does that happen? When we are saved. When the Holy Spirit baptizes us into one body, into the body of Christ. That is when the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. That is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit. How? A little bit here, a little bit there? You get 35% of the Spirit when you're saved, and you get the other 65% when you get the baptism in the Holy No. He gives a Spirit without measure. Dear friends, when God's Holy Spirit converted you, you received all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to receive. You don't, you don't get more of Him. You get all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. We are to yield to the Holy Spirit. But the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that happens when we're saved. And He baptizes us into the body of Christ. Okay, I want us to look at this. This is very important. Divine revelation knowledge. All of the faith preachers claim that God speaks to them. God speaks to them outside of Scripture. gives them new revelation knowledge outside of Scripture. Now, this is a bit of an extreme example to be sure, but uh, I give it to you to make a point. Jesse Duplantis, writing in his magazine, Voice of the Covenant, he says, The Lord showed me a new way to look at Matthew 17, verse 20. Matthew 17, 20 is when Jesus is talking about having faith the size of a mustard seed. And I have this word highlighted, new, for a reason. Jesse thinks that God showed him a new way to look at it. Dear friends, if you're reading the Bible and you come across a verse or a text passage of Scripture and all of a sudden you think you have found a hidden meaning to that particular verse of Scripture that nobody else in the 2,000-year history of the Christian church has ever seen before except you, you're wrong. I don't mean it ugly, but you're wrong. If you think you have found a hidden meaning that has escaped the notice of every other Christian for the last two millennia, you need to take another look at it. You're wrong. But this is what Jesse thought happened to him. He showed me that most people preach on the properties of the seed, but the Lord gave me a deeper understanding on this verse. When he told me, I put a dimension on the size of the mustard seed, but I did not put a dimension on the size of the mountain. I didn't understand, said Jesse. Look, God explained, I made sure you understood the dimension of the faith was small like a mustard seed, but I never set a limit on the size of the mountain. Why do you think I, I didn't set a limit on the size of the mountain, but limited faith to the size of a grain of mustard seed? I still didn't have the answer, said Jesse. Here comes God's answer. Because if you use any more, you'd blow me off my throne. Dear ones, I would submit to you that the only one who is going to be blown off of his throne is Jesse Duplantis by God. Who does this man think he is? Again, these are not Christians. These are not Christians. 
unbelievable. Now, this is a bit of an extreme example to be sure. But I give it to you to illustrate a point and to lead us into something that's very, very important. How does God speak to us? There's a very popular devotional book out right now. It's called, have you seen it? See a lot of nodding heads. Jesus Calling. Do you know that last year in 2012 it was the number two best-selling nonfiction book of all strike, not just Christian, of any strike. Number two. Huge, huge, millions of copies. It is by far the most popular devotional book out there on the market. By far. Jesus Calling. Why am I so worked up about this book? Well, let me show you what, um, let me give you a little background information to Jesus Calling. Sarah Young, author of this book, says this in her introduction. She says, during that same year, she's giving a little life history here, I began reading God Calling, a devotional book by two anonymous listeners. These women practiced waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and papers in hand, recording the messages they received from Him. This book, God Calling, was written some 100 plus years ago, written by two female mystics, these females uh, who said they were listeners. They began to hear the voice of God. Best I can tell, I mean, they are anonymous, but best I can tell, probably Roman Catholic mystics. But uh, they began to hear the voice of God. They said that God began to speak to them, and they wrote down what he said. And Sarah Young was inspired by this book. She goes on to say this. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. That's a problem. See what she's saying? I, yeah, I know, the, I know God communicates through the Bible, but this is not enough. This is not sufficient. I yearned for more. This wasn't doing it for me. You know, in theory at least, theologically conservative evangelical Christians have won the battle that was waged in the uh, 1980s, mid-80s, late-80s over the inerrancy of Scripture. And most theologically conservative evangelical Christians, well, I guess I would have to say all of them, if you're theologically conservative, all of them would affirm the uh, inerrancy of Scripture. In, in theory at least, we've won that battle. But you know where the battle is today? Over the sufficiency of Scripture. And we're losing that one. Big time. The Bible isn't enough anymore. She yearned for more. And this book is huge, huge. Lifeway stores. Mardell's, whatever. She says this. I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed he was saying. Really? So, inspired by God calling, Sarah Young also began to hear the voice of Jesus. She says that Jesus began to speak to her, and with pen in hand, she wrote down what he was saying. Sounds a lot like Scripture, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like what Matthew did, and Mark did, and Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul, and Peter, and sounds a lot like writing Scripture. 
Think of the import. Think of the impact of what she is saying. Jesus speaks to her outside of Scripture in this you know, voice that she tunes into the right frequency. And Jesus starts speaking to her. And she writes down what he says. Dear friends, I would submit to you that if this is what is happening, then whatever Sarah Young writes down should be just as authoritative as anything in this book. If that's what's happening, Sarah Young is writing scripture and we should add it to this book. Again, there's only one problem with that. This book says do not add to this book. And people are eating this up. And in fact, when you read it, if you've got this book, you go home, pull it out, look at it. She writes in the first person for Jesus, I, 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 I will do these things. I said these things. I did. Blasphemy. And people are eating it up. She says this, I knew these writings were not as inspired as Scripture is, but they were helping me grow closer to God. It's almost like she knows the impact of what she's saying. And she tries to hedge her bets a little bit. She says, well, yeah, I know these writings were not as inspired as Scripture is. Well, why not? Why weren't they? Why aren't they? If Jesus is speaking to you, Mrs. Young, and you're writing it down, tell me. Why in the blue-eyed world are they not as inspired as Scripture? Does Jesus speak less authoritatively on some occasions than he does on another? Look at what some of the people are saying about this book. This is frightening. Chris says, this is where I'm slowly finding peace within me. That's just a weird statement anyway. Most profound connection to Christ I have ever experienced, says Valerie. Through the Bible? No, through Jesus Calling. I feel God's amazing love through this book, says Maribel. This book is a comfort for every day, but especially when my son was in a coma fighting for his life, says Judy. I have this book. I love this book. I do not start my day without this book. I have the Bible. I love the Bible. I do not start my day without the Bible. No, Jesus calling. This book is bringing us closer to Christ in our daily walk, says Peter. See the problem? There's an astonishing lack of discernment among professing Christians today. Astonishing. And our Christian bookstores are full of garbage. And Lifeway sells this stuff. You think there, you think there aren't people on, on the uh, staff at Lifeway stores who know some Bible? Oh, they know it. Oh, yeah. You, you think they, they're just unaware of what's in what they sell? No. Because I used to be on the board, and I can tell you, everything that goes through there that has to pass some kind of a test was not a very good test. They know what these things say. They know what the content is. They know it's unbiblical. They know it. But they don't do anything about it. Why? Because it makes money. Lifeway is more concerned about their bottom line than they are the spiritual well-being of their customers. Well, there are some things that Lifeway doesn't sell. They won't sell Benny Hinn books, but why is this any different? Heresy is heresy, is it not? I mean, if you're going to sell stuff like this, you may as well just sell, I don't know, sell the Koran. 
That claims to be inspired too. So how does God speak to us today? How does God speak to us today? Let's go to the text. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The writer of Hebrews says that long ago God spoke in a lot of different ways. Indeed, he did. God spoke to Moses up on the mountain through a storm, thunder. God spoke to Elijah through a still, small voice, which, by the way, was not some inner impression. Okay, It wasn't some thing in your mind that you tune into the right frequency and then it comes in. Still an audible voice. Numbers chapter 22, God made a donkey talk. God did indeed speak in many different portions and in many different ways. But in these last days, says the writer of Hebrews, he has spoken to us in his son. Friends, Jesus is the final speaking of God. The final speaking of God. Everything that God has to say to us, he has said in his son, Jesus Christ. And we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in his word. Jesus is the final speaking of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to leave here today and think, oh, well, Justin told us that God doesn't speak to us anymore. That's not at all what I'm saying. God does speak to us right here. This is how God speaks to us. God will give us wisdom. James is very clear about that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him pray to God. God will give us wisdom in conjunction and in agreement with his word. God will direct our paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. How does God do that? I don't have the slightest idea. Just know he does. Now you hear people say things like, well, God laid somebody on my heart. You know, God gave me a burden for someone. Can God do that? Sure he can. Sure, he can bring people to our remembrance. You know, and, and impress somebody on our heart, if you want to use that terminology. But there is a sense in which the Scripture says we are to bear one another's burdens anyway. And so that's just kind of living out the Christian life. But could some God bring somebody specifically to our remembrance? Sure, He can. Sure. You know. But what I am saying is this, dear friends. When people say God spoke to me and said, quote... Da-da-da-da-da. You've entered some deep waters. Very deep waters. I would submit that God is not speaking in a direct, quotable sense outside of Scripture today any longer. Because if God is, then whatever He supposedly says should be just as authoritative as any verse in this book. God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. You know, God cannot speak in the Bible and really, really, really mean it. But when he speaks to us today outside of the Bible in this still small voice, which is taken out of context, but when he does that, he, he still means it. But he doesn't mean as much as he meant it here. How does that work? Friends, if God is speaking... God is speaking. 
And he cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. And then the question is, well, well, how do I know God's will for my life? You know how you know what there has been, I would say there are other factors, but I'd say one of the things that has really muddied the waters and given people a lot of confusion about hearing the voice of God is experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Have you ever gone through this? You know, if you go back 30 plus years ago, almost every Christian would have understood that God speaks to us through the Bible. We speak to God in prayer. But now few people really understand that because we've been told by so many, not just charismatics, but so many others, that uh, prayer is a two-way street. That, you know, we pray and we, we talk to God for a little while and then we're supposed to get real quiet and we're supposed to listen for His voice. Right? And so a lot of people do this. And they'll, they'll, they'll start to pray. You know, they'll get, get by themselves, close everything off. They'll get in their private prayer closet or whatever. And they'll start to pray and they'll talk to God for a little while. And they pray and they say, okay, Lord, based on this Bible study I did, I'm, you're supposed to talk back to me. So I, I'm ready. I'm, I'm listening. Speak to me. And we get real quiet, right? We concentrate. So we... And then what happens? Inevitably, a thought goes through our mind, right? And we think, oh, was that you, Lord? Was that, was that you or was that just me? Was that God or was that just a shooter thought, you know? How do you know? How do you know? It used to drive me crazy. And a lot of people today are being very confused about How do you know? Friends, you won't find anything like that modeled in Scripture. When God spoke in the days of the Bible, and by the way, it wasn't nearly as often as a lot of people think. There was 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. God didn't say anything, nothing. But when God did speak, everybody knew who it was, and they knew exactly what he said. There was none of this, was that you, Lord? Was that me? Was that a random thought? Was that the pizza I ate? What, what was it? You won't find anything like that model in the Scripture. When God spoke, people knew who it was and knew exactly what He said. So friends, if you want to know God's will for your life, here's how you know God's will. Live in obedience to the Word of God. Pray for wisdom. Seek to glorify God. Keep a short sin account. Look at the opportunities before you. And then do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. You don't have to hear the voice of God to know where to go to school or who to marry or what car to buy or you know, what house to buy or where to... Live your life in obedience to the Word of God. Pray for wisdom. Keep a short sin account. And then look at the opportunities before you and do whatever you want to do. God will direct your paths. He spoke the universe into existence. I think He can direct our paths. Friends, if you want to hear God speak to you, there's one way I can guarantee you, you will hear God speak to you. Read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud.
I promise you, you'll hear him speak. How are we doing on time? I, okay, I want to show you this real quick. Some of the uh, mangled manifestations in the charismatic slash word faith movement, I've talked about how they are demonic. Watch these brief couple of clips. Have you ever heard of Kundalini? Hindu Kundalini. When you look at videos of people in Kundalini, they look identical to what's happening today in the charismatic slash word faith churches. Watch this. invading the church. The stuff that's been invading in the last, say, 16 to 17 years, I believe it's the worst invasion in church history. So we've got a lot to look at. And my background is I've been involved in the charismatic movement myself for over 25 years. I've been part of the prophetic movement. I was part of that movement for 11 years. So I saw all of this incredibly alarming and disturbing stuff coming in Uh, while I was involved. Now the basic question that we're asking in this documentary is why are these manifestations so similar to Eastern religions and Hinduism and the Kundalini cults and yet they're not found in Scripture, they're not found in the Bible, they're not found in classical Christianity at all. Of course, in Hinduism, one of the most common ways of experiencing a kundalini awakening is through a guru placing his hand upon your forehead. This is called Shaktipat. And when they do that, you'll be infused with this incredible love and this wave of emotion. You'll fall down. There'll be all these manifestations, maybe animal noises, uh, joy and weeping and shaking. This is a kundalini awakening. And amazingly, it is exactly the same as what we have been seeing. Isn't it incredible that starting around 1994, this stuff could invade the entire charismatic church movement almost worldwide on a vast scale, and yet it's absolutely identical, seemingly, to Kundalini Hinduism. Now, one of the very clearest signs of a Kundalini awakening has always been these Kriyas. You see this woman involved in the New Age movement. She's walking along exhibiting these Kriyas happening, involuntary uh, jerking motions. And the staggering thing about it is that we are seeing again and again and again these exact same type of Kriyas This has always been one of the clearest signs of Kundalini that we know of. A friend of mine from South Africa who's done a tremendous amount of research on this topic says that Kundalini is like a false Holy Spirit. It produces even miracles and healings and fusions of love and power and energy and emotion and uh, all these kinds of things and yet it's the Hindu version of the Holy Spirit and it's not holy. 
tell me, how could this happen? How could this stuff invade the whole charismatic movement on such a scale? How could these leaders, these big leaders, support it? And how on earth are we supposed to turn around such an invasion? The second clip is just dealing with Rodney Howard Brown, and it shows very similar things to what we just saw in that one, people laughing uncontrollably. And uh, so it's basically the same thing. But isn't that kind of unnerving? That people in Hindu kundalini, they exhibit behavior that looks identical to what we see in the modern charismatic movement. The jerking, the twitching, the laughter speaking in tongues, being slain in the Spirit. It's the same thing. That is unnerving. Charismatics don't realize what they have exposed themselves to. Do not exceed what is written, said Paul. The Bible gives us parameters for a reason. Therefore, our protection We'll conclude this session by looking at false prophets. Now, this is kind of a quick checklist. How to discern when you may be dealing with a false prophet. Number one, if a person rules on his or her own authority rather than that of Scripture, good sign you're dealing with a false prophet. When somebody appeals to some authoritative source, some source of authority outside of Scripture, false prophet. Word of faith does this. Uh, Mormons do this because they go to the uh, Book of Mormon, you know, Pearl of Great Price. Roman Catholics do this because they go to church tradition over and above that of Scripture. Good indication you're dealing with a false system. If a person habitually displays questionable moral character, cannot speak for God. If a person peddles the Word of God for personal financial gain... Good indication you're dealing with a false teacher. Uh, now, a word, of, a word of a little disclaimer here. I don't want people to get the idea that I'm against money. Okay? I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being wealthy. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing inherently wrong with it. Nothing inherently honorable in being poor. Okay? That's not the point. The point is, is how you gain that wealth. If you gain that wealth all over uh, hard work and sweat, hey, that's great. I'm all for it. You know, as long as you, as long as you use that in a God-honoring, responsible way, nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of our labors. But if you gain that wealth off of distorting the gospel, off of peddling the word of God, off of exploiting sick and hurting and desperate people, there's a lot wrong with that. And that's what we're talking about. If a person deifies man while diminishing the glory of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, dealing with false teacher. And clearly, the word faith preachers do this. One of the easiest ways to tell a false prophet is if he or she offers prophecies that just don't come true. I could have, I mean, there's, there's hundreds, literally hundreds of false prophets between Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis and Creflo Dollar and all these others. I mean, hundreds of them. 
For example, in 1989, Benny Hinn prophesied that in the 1990s, and I've got this on audio clip, but for time's sake, I'll summarize. In 1989, Benny Hinn prophesied that in the, in the decade of the 1990s, Fidel Castro would die in office. Uh, there would be a short man dictator to come on the scene of the earth. There would be a woman in the White House, female president. There would be earthquakes on the East Coast. And homosexuals would be destroyed by fire. Did he, <laughs> did he get any of those right? No. I want to show you a video clip of Benny Hinn and Pat Robertson. Now, this was just from last year. Now, Benny Hinn, both Benny Hinn and Pat Robertson have their own fair share of false prophecies. Both of these men do. And they've been busted on them numerous times. And you would think that these guys, after having been proven false so many times, you would, pr you would think they would think, you know, all right, I, I probably ought to lay off the prophesying because I don't have a real good track record here. But, oh, no, undeterred. Watch this as Benny Hinn listens to Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson tells Benny Hinn who is going to win the 2012 presidential elections. Now, you figure he's got a 50-50 shot at it, right? <laughs> but not only is he, he's not just making a prediction. He says God told him. I mean, that's the way he thinks. And he will be tremendous on the economy. Uh, he's uncomfortable with foreign policy, I feel. Uh, but nevertheless, he'll be a strong, strong man. But if he comes in... Secondly, uh, he's going to have a second term. He's going to win. Romney, Romney will win the election. Do you believe that? I absolutely believe that. What makes you believe that? Because the Lord told me. Well, that's why I'm glad to, I'm glad to know. I wasn't sure how you knew. Really, the Lord said that to you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I told Mitt a long time ago. I called him. I said, listen, I've, I've, I've been in prayer. I, I, number one, you're going to win the nomination. Number two, you're going to win the general election. He said, well, what can I do for you? I said, well, give me a seat on the platform. <laughs> give me a ticket to your inauguration. Recently, the Lord said he's going to have a second term. So, And I, and I, I told him, I said, listen, there's going to be, there will be trillions of dollars coming into the economy when you're elected. Trillions of dollars. So you do see the economy turning oh, my if he wins the election. There'll be a flood of money that's on the sidelines, into business, into real estate, and there should be a huge boom. The stock market ought to boom, everything ought to boom. I, I would think if he's elected. If on the other hand, oh, but the Lord told you he wouldn't be. Yes. <laughs> I trust God's voice. Well, we'll see. But uh, it, it's in the hands of the, the Lord and in the hands of the people. So I don't want to discourage anyone from voting. Like, they're going to get out and vote. But <clears throat> I... Now, I try to hedge his bed a little bit. Well, you know, people vote. But he said at least twice, the Lord told me that not only will Romney win, but he'll also win re-election in 2016. Oops. False prophets. False prophets. So, anyway, it would behoove Pat Robertson to stop spending so much time and effort trying to hear the voice of God outside of Scripture and just get into his Bible. So, anyway, thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed our time together. Thank you very much for coming and, and uh, your support. And, and Lord willing, would love to... See many of you back tomorrow morning at, at 10 o'clock. Brother Steve, do you want to come and...